Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we this morning? Guys, we're going to have a picnic and it's not going to rain. Isn't that amazing? I know I just jinxed it, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's going to happen today. It's going to be good. If you haven't seen yet, we got some senior boards out in the hallway-ish area. What I love about May is just there's so much life that happens in May. We celebrate usually people that graduate and we celebrate next steps. There's just life happening all over the place. And and that's actually what we're talking about in our series. It's called Greater Life. We're going through a section of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 6 and 7. And we're asking this question, after the resurrection, Jesus called us into something. And it's not just the sit and wait game for one day when life is okay. Jesus didn't call us into a life that says, I'm pointing you towards a day when I come back or you die. It's going to be great. Suffer now, right? He said suffering happens, but he's calling us into this world, this life, this culture that as followers of Jesus, we create as we live out the rhythms of Jesus every single day. And it started with the resurrection. And because the resurrection is real, we believe that the life, the world, the culture Jesus says we can create, we believe because the resurrection happened that it's real as well. And as the church, we get to live that out. And so last year we talked about the idea of religion whatever baggage you might bring in, that that Jesus calls us into a greater version of what religion is. He doesn't hate religion. God actually created religion, but there's a better way to do it. And we said religion is good if it focuses on good, and that's God, not us. It always gets off course if we shift that focus and make its good our good. And that's what's happened. I can probably fill in the blank for you, and you can look through history, and every time we see religion focus on people, it starts to hurt instead of help. And so this week we're going to talk about, I think if we're talking about life and we're talking about our culture and our life, today we're going to talk about the fun topic of consumerism and wealth in Flower Mound, everybody. Mmm, now we're excited, you know? And it's just right now you thought, man, I could have slept in. That sounded so good. I, I, I think it's pretty amazing when we talk about consumerism in our culture. I think it, without a doubt, is a driver of our culture, and now more so than ever, because for the first time in the history of time, consumerism is easier than ever. Thank you, Amazon. Did you read last week how Amazon announced that now they're going to have one-day delivery because two days was too long to wait, you know? One day delivery. I know that consumerism drives my life because every day I walk up and there's a brown box on my porch, right? Every, and most times I'm thinking, what did we buy now? It's for our life. This is going to be good. Sarah, good purchase, you know? Consumerism drives what we do, not just for me personally. It drives us as a culture. It's why you see our culture that is massively in debt, I think we shared this a couple months back, but the average debt for the American family is about $135,000. Credit card debt, $7,000 at the end of 2018. Auto debt's $28,000. Student loans are $47,000, and that's not coming down anywhere. We're a culture that's infatuated with debt and stuff. We are. And we see it because we know how big Amazon Prime is in all of our worlds because we've all had those brown boxes delivered. But here's the deal. I don't think the value of consumerism stops at our culture. I think it's 
infringed upon Christianity too. There was an article in the New York Times three weeks ago or so, and it was titled, Let Him Without Yeezys Cast the First Stone. Okay, nobody probably knows what Yeezys are, right? But if you did, Yeezys are a high-end sneaker, like really high-end. And it was all about kind of there's this Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, which I am not featured on. And... Um, it's, it's about how there are some preachers that, that like stuff. They like good clothes and good shoes. And I'm not up here today to say whether that's good or bad. I'm simply saying it is. Uh, we have to recognize with the fact that our culture has impacted our view of Christianity, how we walk out our faith. There's one theologian, and he says it like this. I love it. He says, many people perceive, many uh, perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not as sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. And we live in Flower Mound, so affluent is a conversation that we're used to, and that's because God is gracious to us. I think we have to recognize and wrestle with the truth that our consumeristic culture has impacted how we live at our faith. And that's a tough question for all of us. It is for me. There's a uh, a director of the Center for Religious and American Public Life, and he said, in the United States, his name's Alan Wolf, culture has transformed Christ, as well as all other religions found within these shores. In every aspect of the religious life, American faith has met American culture, and American culture has triumphed. <laughs> Look, here's the deal. When we talk about what life looks like, when we talk about what we value as Americans, I think we have to stop down and talk about stuff. Our desire for stuff our incessant need for stuff right now, we have to talk about how our desire for stuff impacts how we see our faith. Because when you get down to it, when we talk about affluence or wealth or stuff, I think it comes down to two pretty simple things, for me at least. I think greater wealth does two things. It, it brings power and it buys freedom. And we like nothing more than freedom. I think with greater wealth, it brings more power for people around us and it buys freedom because with wealth, I can look at anybody, any place, any time and say, I'm free to do what I want because I'm not dependent on you. With wealth comes my ability to do what I want, when I want, how I want, right? I was talking to a buddy of mine who flies on private planes and we were talking about, I said, man, that'd be so cool to fly on a private plane in case any of you own any of them. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, you know, it's not owning the plane that's the best part. He says, if you've ever flown privately, the best part of flying private is you can walk on the plane and you can say, let's go, and they leave. I'm going to try that on my next flight in a couple weeks. I'm just going to start yelling, let's go. I'll get kicked out of the flight, right? <laughs> they will escort me off. I'll be yelling the whole time, let's go! You know, and they will lead me to the terminal again. The best part of wealth is that it enables us to feel like we're free. But Jesus says some different things about wealth, and he says some different things about value, and that's what I want to talk about today, and we're going to be in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Before we talk about wealth, we're going to pray a little bit, because, and let me lay this out at the very beginning, I, I grew up in a culture, I grew up in this culture, I grew up in an affluent culture, upper middle class, God was gracious to my family, and so I feared for a long time that following Jesus ultimately led me to a life where I give up everything and live in poverty because I read verses in Acts where they gave up everything and I thought if I really loved Jesus, I would not love anything else. And that's what that meant. My, my goal today, just so we can state it up front, is not in any way to bring shame on anybody in this room. It's to ask us to think about how we see our stuff in light of how Jesus saw stuff. And so we're going to get into it, and we're going to go through some text, and I'm going to try to package it in 45 fun-filled minutes, okay? But before we do that, we're going to pray, 
Two reasons, like always, we pray because we have two goals at Crossroads on Sunday mornings. We want to know God, and we know God by opening a scripture, and we know there's no end to our understanding of God, and that shows that he's bigger than us, and I need a God that's bigger than me. And two, we worship God because we know him. Because in the middle of sitting and do his majesty, we realize this is a God that's not just I should worship, but is, that is deserving of it. It's a response to grandioseness, is worship. And so when we open the scriptures today, it's not a consumer-driven thing that we do. We believe the Holy Spirit's living and active and is going to do a work in you this morning. What that means is you do work too. That means is you sit there and you wrestle with text and you ask the question, Holy Spirit, how are you shaping this text in my life? What does it look like for me? So we're going to take some time and I'm going to pray for us and ask that if you're comfortable, you pray quietly to yourself and we're just going to ask that the Holy Spirit does some work today. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can meet in spaces like this and talk about how our culture has impacted our faith. I love that we can talk about maybe some sensitive subjects or we can talk about some things that might be difficult or might hit a sore spot for some of us. I pray that as we have conversations that it's had with grace, that the first thing that we know is that we're loved in this place and out of that comes these conversations. So be with us today. Help us and guide us and teach us as we talk about money and wealth. Help us to see your intent behind it. I'd ask if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just pray for you that the Holy Spirit might reveal the truth of God in our text today and that God might do some work in your soul. I'd ask that you pray for me. I might say things that are edifying and true and, and good that bring freedom and not shame um, and that we might hear from the Lord this morning. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Now we're in it together. Matthew 6, everybody, open your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 19. It kicks off like this. Do not accumulate for yourself treasures on earth right? We've probably heard this verse before. We've heard God's view on stuff before. If you've been in church for a long time, you've no doubt heard this before they take the offering. You know, we waited till after everybody because we're a grace-based church, all right? You've heard this talked about, and before we get into anything else, I want to I talk about God's view of stuff, okay? Just so we can lay a foundation and a framework. Three things we have to know about God's view of stuff. First of all, God doesn't think that storing up stuff is necessarily bad, right? Proverbs says it like this in, five, um, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for winter. What he's saying in the Proverbs, a book about wisdom, is think about tomorrow, don't just think about today. So your Roth IRAs are a good idea, everybody. Save for retirement. That is wisdom and that is holy and that is righteous. He's not saying liquidate your funds and depend on God for tomorrow's tomorrow. That's not what he means. There's no wisdom there. So God doesn't necessarily speak against the building up of stuff for rainy days. Two, the second thing we know about God's view of stuff is he says enjoy it. So in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, command those who are rich in the world's goods, not to be haughty or set um, their hope upon riches, which are uncertain, but on God, who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. 
So one thing we have to recognize, there was a big push in the Middle Ages, a monasticism push to get rid of all stuff because stuff was bad. And the more you suffered, the more you loved God. That is not what the scriptures say. God, God gives us things because he loves us. You know, having a kid eight months ago, I'll tell you what, I, I didn't get until now really the joy of giving and the joy of watching my kid open whatever I give her and chew on the packaging, right? <laughs> With reckless abandon. I'm telling you, I think God is a good father. The scriptures say that. And I think he gives us good things and he gives us beauty and he gives us good food and he gives us good wine and he gives us good stuff because he's a good father and he wants us to enjoy it. You've given good gifts to people and if they just looked at you and gave it back, that would take joy from you. God says, I've, I've made good things for you. It's what's seen in the garden at the very first in Genesis. God made the entire world. He made the entire world and then he set us as prized possession in it and said, look what I did for you because I value you, right? So when God says, don't make your treasures earthly things, he's not meaning don't build up wealth and he's not meaning don't enjoy the good graces I've given you, the stuff around you. And the third thing we have to recognize is that God doesn't hate stuff because he made a lot of it, you know? When we see from the very beginning in creation to now, we see people in the Old Testament God blessed with stuff. Job and Abraham and, and for a certain time, Lot and David and Solomon. We see people in the Old Testament that God blessed with lots of stuff. We see people in the New Testament and Phoebe that, that started churches in Philippi that he blessed with stuff. I read an article this week by Philip deGrasse Tyson, who's a physicist and way smarter than me. And he said, um, it blew my mind. Actually, this is what these people do because they clearly had a different upbringing than me. They calculated how many grains of sand are, in, are on the earth. They took a teaspoon of sand, they calculated the size of an average grain of sand, and then they did some math that I don't understand, and they said, approximately, this is how many grains of sand are on our earth right now, and then this guy, the most notable physicist and probably astrophysicist in the world, said, and there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the earth, and I can prove it, right? That, to me, blew me away. Here's my point, is that God doesn't hate stuff because he made a whole lot of it. He's not a minimalist God. He didn't create one star, called it the sun, and said, I have one planet Earth with people, let's call it a day. God seemingly values stuff. The question we have to ask today is, what are we supposed to do with the stuff that he valued? And what is Jesus saying when he says, don't accumulate treasures on Earth? Because it seems like God made all this stuff, but then he says, don't, don't use it or don't value it or don't build it up, but seemingly God likes and values the things he creates. In another Gospel in Luke 12, I just want to read you this story. Jesus is talking about kind of the same idea of our inclination, if you will, towards stuff, towards wealth, towards prosperity. And he shares a story, it's a parable. He said, then someone from the crowd, this is verse 13, then someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man who made me a judge and arbitrator, who made me a judge and arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, watch out and guard yourself from all types of greed because one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. He then told them a parable. The land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, what should I do for I have no way to store my crops? Then he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, celebrate. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded back from you. 
but who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So it's, the one, so it's with the one who stores up riches for himself, but is not rich towards God. Daryl Bach says it like this. What Jesus precludes there is an accumulation of massive amounts of treasure as a life goal. So there's a differentiation between gathering stuff because God is good and gathering stuff because we think we are. And what he's saying in our text, when he starts off by saying don't build up treasures, is if the end goal of your treasure is you, you've started in a wrong place. I, I think through when I was reading this, the first thing that came to my mind, if you guys ever watched DuckTales growing up, do you watch DuckTales? I can still sing the song, it haunts me, you know? It's in my head right now, I'm not going to sing it, I'm not going to sing it, okay? Uh, there's a... Uh, in the intro song to DuckTales that I used to watch. I don't know if you guys remember these. They, in the mid-90s, they had these big, 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 big vans. And they had, we have iPads now and flat screens. Back then, there were these tube 12-inch TVs. And there were these huge vans. And up top, they like put a TV in this van, right? It was the biggest van you could buy. And we thought that we were living in the future back then. So driving home from school, which for me was about a half hour in my carpool, we would watch like this run, this onslaught of cartoons, and DuckTales was one of them. Killing every afternoon at like 3.30, and there was a scene when Scrooge McDuck dives into a bunch of gold coins and swims. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Two things as I've gotten older. One, that would hurt. Two, coins are filthy, okay? Just, we send kids the wrong messages, but that's the message that he's railing against here. He's saying, all this guy wanted to do was build up big silos of money so he could look at his money and say, man, look what I've done. And Jesus, when he says, don't store up for yourself treasure in heaven, what he's meaning, what he's saying is don't store up treasure for your own good. There's a greater, bigger good, greater life that comes from wealth that you've missed. So he says, don't accumulate for yourself treasures on earth. And if you don't know what treasure is, because it's not just money. At the very end of this, in verse 24, we see an Aramaic word, and essentially it just means money and all the stuff money can buy. So all the Amazon Prime packages that come to my house. And, and what it means when he says, don't store up treasure, we have to define treasure. He does it in verse 21, if you look there. He says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So what Jesus does is he kind of at the end of this segment ties in, if you want to know where your treasure is, if you don't know, because it's not money for everybody, if you want to know where your treasure is, look where your heart is. And in the first century world, they didn't have CAT scans or CT scans or full body scans. What they did was they ascribed everything to this middle area they couldn't really define. They knew they had a heart. They actually didn't have a word for brain in the first century Hebrew so they thought everything stemmed from their heart. There's a story I read I liked. There's a boy who asked his teacher, um, a boy sat down, a teacher asked him, where is your heart? The boy responded, my heart's where I sit down. The teacher was surprised and asked, how did you get that idea? The little boy responded and said, every time I do something good, my grandma pats me there and says, bless your heart, <laughs> you know? It's that idea that in the first century world, they didn't have the concepts that we have now. So when they said the word heart, literally, and you can go to scriptures on this and I can give you a bunch if you email me, but it means more than just what I feel. It means my mind, what I want to do, my desires, what I'm driving to do, and my intellect and my passions. My heart is all of it. My heart are those things that I absolutely aspire towards. The heart was the driving force for your entire life. So when Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, and he says, here's what treasures are. Treasures are where your heart is always, always. If you can't find where your treasure are, I'm going to ask you a question. What drives you? What do you aspire towards? 
Ask that question, wrestle with that question, ask your friends and family that question, and they will point you to what your heart's set on, and where your heart is, your treasures are. It can't be any other way. (laughs) You might say that I really value family, but if all you think about and all you use your money towards is not family but work, I'm telling you, treasures work. Ask your friends, they see it if you don't. And so what Jesus is saying is if you want to know where your treasures are, look where your heart is, what drives what you do, and he says there's two ways to look at it. I'm going to Jesus says, I'm going to reduce it down and take off all the nuance. There's treasures here and treasures there. He says in verse 19, don't accumulate for yourself treasures on earth where moth and devouring insects destroy, where thieves break in and steal. My translation says devouring insect. I use the net Bible. Um, Yours probably says rust. The word there for rust isn't the word that we see for rust in uh, the first century in the Greek, but what it means essentially is the same thing as where um, moths and devouring insects, what rust means there is something that decays, rots, or deteriorates. And that's what moths were. In the first century, wealth was often accumulated in clothing, and moths killed clothing. And so what he's saying is things on earth, and you guys know this to be true, they break down. I live in a house now. I'm just waiting for things to break on me. I am waiting for things to break on me, you know? So when you put your treasures, when you put your heart, when you aspire towards things of this world, you have to know one thing about it is that none of it lasts. And, and I don't have to look farther than my very own body to see that to be true. The most tense-filled moment of my day is when I put my kid down for a nap on Fridays when I'm home, right? Because I want to get some work done. And she fights that because she loves her dad, is what I'm told, right? And, and so I... She, unlike me, I, I'm deaf in one ear and she can hear out of both ears. Our kids can be better than us. And so I, I put her down to sleep and you do this look, like hug and roll thing and lay her on her side and then you pray, you know? And I put my little hand on her shoulder and I try and walk away. Any noise, this kid wakes up. This kid just rolls over and sees that you're not there and she lets you know that she wants you there. My problem is that I grew up playing sports. I'm 35 years old and when I walk, my body pops. It just pops. My ankles pop, my knees pop, and there have been several times when I walk away and I'm reminded my body's breaking down because I pop and my kid rolls over and starts yelling again, thank you, JV Sports, everybody. Totally worth it, you know? It's the idea that when you really, when you really look at it, this world is breaking down. Even the things that we don't make that we think are secure, so not just my body, but my stuff. I mean, you don't have to think back much longer than 10 years ago and you see the housing crisis in 2008. Housing values, they dropped by 31.8%, the Great Recession. The U.S. economy shrank by 3.9% in the largest year-over-year decline since World War II. I knew several people who lost their retirements. The things that we think are the most secure aren't as secure as we think. That's just the nature of this world. So we do a lot and we spend a lot and we try really hard to believe that we're more secure than we are. And some of that's okay. But Jesus says nothing is as secure as you think it is. And that's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to scare me. That's just meant for us not to put all of our hope and aspiration in things that are only going one direction. He's, remember, even in the middle of our affluent culture that builds security up and highlights it and spends money on it, know that things aren't as secure as you think they are because they will, in the end, be eaten. They will be destroyed. They will lose value. And he says, not only will they lose value, but there are always thieves. In the first century world, most houses were made of mud huts, and so they would cut circles in the walls and just like reach in and take stuff, right? Here's the one thing I know, and I've only been alive for a little while, but the more that we grow in our technology of security, the better the thieves get. (laughs) 
the proliferation of thievery, I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. There was a show I used to watch back in the day, and it was all about how they paid these thieves to come in their house and like break in because they thought they had a secure home. I forget what network it was on. It was awesome to watch because these people would say, I know my house is secure. And these professional thieves would break in in 35 seconds and steal their flat screen and be out, you know? And, and these families would kind of be left with a sense of vulnerability, like all this stuff that I put my hope in doesn't really protect me. And so what Jesus is saying, and something we all know to be true, but we need to be reminded of because it's so hard in our culture to believe that everything's breaking down when we build in a sense of security. He's saying, don't put all that you aspire to, your heart, your treasure, the things that you value, and things that are only going one direction. He says, instead, this is verse 20, accumulate for yourself treasures in heaven. Just for a second, I want to focus on that word, treasures in heaven. A couple things. One, this is in a larger context of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and Christian living. Really what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's declaring the rhythms and ways of his kingdom. And one of the major purposes of this text, in general, the three chapters in the middle of Matthew, is he's saying my kingdom isn't a future hope, it's a present reality for my people, right? As we live out his rhythms and ways, what we talked about. And so when he says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, what he doesn't mean fully is if you do good things here, you get a bigger bank account there. That's not what he's talking about when he says rewards. What he's doing is he's saying, if Jesus' mission, part of it, was to bring the reality of heaven into the present day, he's saying what we see are treasures in heaven that manifest themselves in our everyday. When we talked about heaven last fall, we defined it like this. Heaven is where God's presence is fully known, his influence is fully felt, and everything is fully blessed. What Jesus is saying is that when we invest in heavenly things, we see heavenly rewards in front of us because he's creating a culture in the middle of this one. He says there's a better way. What Jesus is saying is it will come to fruition one day, but you can lay hold of that treasure right here and right now, and it doesn't break down. So if you want to know what parts of this treasure looks like, read Matthew 5, 2 through 8. Look at the Beatitudes. As we build up a people and a community that's centered on Christ and his ways and his rhythms, we start to see those manifest in the world around us. And here's the one thing I know is that character usually doesn't break down in crisis. It flourishes. And Jesus has built in the ways of the kingdom. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, go down the list. Build in the ways of the Beatitudes. Those are the treasures in heaven. You're living into how I created life to be. And so he says, but instead, invest in those opportunities because those are the better ones that don't, that don't break down, even if everything else is. John Stott said this, he said, when the choice is seen for what it is, a choice between creator and creature, between the glorious personal God and the miserable thing called money, between worship and idolatry, it seems inconceivable that anybody could make the wrong choice. For now, it's a question not just of comparative durability and comparative benefit, but of comparative worth. The intrinsic worth of the one and the intrinsic worthlessness of the other. So here's the what. 
the what is, don't build into this treasure, build into this treasure. We have two ways. We have a juxtaposed dichotomy that Jesus is saying, you have two choices here. You're going to aspire towards something, I promise. Your heart's going to be someplace. Where is it? It's either going to be on my things or on other things. He's saying, check your heart. And then the next couple of verses, he says, here's the what. Here's what happens with the what that you follow. So look at, um, look at the next couple of verses in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. So he shifts into this idea of eye. And if you're just reading this, you're thinking to yourself, why does he go from treasures to eyes? And it's not because he had bad vision and he wanted better vision. Jesus does it because throughout the scriptures, and what we know to be true, is the eye is a picture, a window into our souls. That's why people look at me now and they say, Charlie, your eyes look tired all the time. Thank you. I appreciate you. You know, it's so good. That's why when my kid got sick a couple weeks ago, I can look at her eyes and say what my mom said to me. You have sick eyes. What, what, what they're making a case for is that what you look at and how you look shows us a picture of what you value, what your heart is, where your soul is. And, and I can prove this again. Let's go back to TV. I can prove this by probably what you watch. Growing up, we did a lot of the sports things, so my family watches a lot of the sports. If my TV's on, it's probably on sports and I remember the first time my wife watched sports with my family. It was a PGA Tour event. And she thought watching golf was kind of a quiet affair until she went to my house. And I think it was the US Open one year. And she, we left. And I don't know if we were married yet. And she said, I've never seen people watch golf like that. <laughs> right? Because with every stroke, we're yelling at the TV. We're jumping up and down. My family, we are very passionate people. You know? And here's the deal. I watch a lot of sports. You know, you know why? Because I value sports. I watched a lot of sports because it's something I used to aspire towards before my third year in JV and I realized I wasn't going D1. You know what I'm talking about? I value it. And so I look at what I watch, I look at where my eyes gravitate towards, and I can tell you exactly where my heart is, where my treasures are. I can look at your DVR and tell you probably what you value too. When I bought a house, I started watching more HGTV. You know what I'm talking about? I can tell you when my wife watches sports, what she values, me. (laughs) Not sports at all. What he's saying when he says, if your eye is healthy, what he's saying is that your eyes are a mirror, a picture into your soul. They reveal what your heart likes and doesn't like because you don't watch things you don't like. And so he's saying, if your eye is healthy, that word healthy there in the Greek literally means singular or oneness. If it's focused on one thing, it says it leads to light. He says, if your eye is healthy, it's your whole body then is full of light. It's a reflection of what you value. He's saying if you focus on the things of heaven, on the intangibles, on the character of God, if you focus on those things, your entire world will be filled with those as you live it out. He's calling us into to create a different culture in the middle of this one. And then he flips it. He says in the next verse, if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. That word there, if your eye is diseased, is, is, and this is why he goes to eyes in the first place, it's a Hebrew idiom. So they used to say in the Old Testament and all throughout the first century, if you were a stingy person, they'd say that you had a diseased eye. So what he's saying, literally, we, I'll show you at Proverbs 28, the stingy person hastens after riches and does not know that poverty will overtake him. That word stingy person literally is translated in the, in the um, Aramaic. It's translated the guy with the diseased eye. In the Old Testament, there's a section in Deuteronomy 15 where the law is talking about how God wants his people to be liberal with the people around him. If your brother needs something, don't hesitate to give. 
And in Deuteronomy 15 verse 9, it says, Be careful, lest you entertain the wicked thought that the seventh year, the year of cancellation of debts, because that's what God built into their culture, has almost arrived, and your attitude be wrong towards your impoverished fellow Israelite, and you don't lend him everything. That word attitude there, same thing. It's literally translated, his eye is sick. So in the scriptures, when we see this eye analogy, what it means, it's a picture of your soul, and they say, if you were not a giving person, that your eye is sick and diseased. So Jesus says in our text, have a healthy eye, be big givers with the people around you because you understand that your stuff isn't your stuff, it's God's stuff. And then he says, if, if in verse 22, 23, he says, if your eye is diseased, your whole body is full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So it's all about how we see stuff. As mine that I want to keep, or as God's that I can repurpose for his purposes. I remember two movies growing up that stuck with me, and I immediately thought of them. The first one is, is a, you know, we've all seen A Christmas Carol. You know, it's the idea that this old man with a bunch of money, and he's even stingy towards little tiny Tim, who's hobbling along and just wants some, some money and food for his family. And he gets visited by three ghosts, and the ghosts, past, present, and future, they show him where his life ends up, and he looks at it, and he says, you know what? If I live my life only for my benefit, then I'm only going to end up with me and my stuff, and that's a sad way to end up. And so he tries to change things. I counter that with, I think this might have been the first movie to make me get a little teary-eyed. I was probably in junior high, and I didn't want to watch the movie to begin with, and then I did, and at the end, I mean, I'm trying to hide. I I still think if I watched it now, I'd get teary-eyed. Have you seen Mr. Holland's Opus? Oh my goodness, guys. It's about this choir teacher, band teacher, who's got a deaf son, so I was like, yes, you know, and... And, and he spends his entire life, his entire life pouring into kids, being a high school teacher, which I've been told doesn't pay the best. And, and at the end of it, there's a scene. I'm not ruining it. The movie's 30 years old. This isn't Avengers. And he walks into this auditorium with all the lives that he's touched, with all the people that he's influenced. And dude, if you don't weep at that moment, you don't feel things, okay? And so what Jesus is saying is literally we're creating culture in the middle of this one. And if you give, then you see the way that we're supposed to live unfold in the world around you. It spreads if your eye is diseased and you keep your stuff for you, you end up with you and your stuff. And that is not a good way to end up. He's saying, here's the two what's. Earthly treasure, heavenly treasure. Pick one. Let me tell you where those what's go. And the reality is, is the reality is that we live in a consumeristic culture and it's so easy, it's so incredibly easy to pick the wrong thing. There was a philosopher who said, consumption is a system of meaning. We assign value to ourselves and others based on the goods we purchase. One's identity is now constructed by the clothes you wear, the vehicle you drive, and the music on your iPod. In short, you are what you consume. That's the truth, you know? You are what you consume. Really what this conversation is about, it's a conversation about lust. It is. And sometimes when we talk about lust, we think lust is a bad thing. Lust is not a bad thing. Lust for bad things is bad. Lust for good things is good. If I lust after my wife, I have a healthy marriage. If I lust after somebody else's wife, I have an unhealthy marriage. God's saying, don't lust after bad things. Lust is essentially always, it always leads to more. There's a famous quote by John D. Rockefeller, who was probably the richest man that ever lived. If you put his present value, his value back then in the 1900s into the present, he 
probably had a net worth of somewhere north of $380 billion, right? And they asked him one time, they said, how much money is enough? And he answered, a little bit more, you know? The idea that you think I have this standard for what enough is, but the funny thing about enough is when I get to enough, there's always more. It's never enough. If I'm at my first million, I look at what I could have if I had two million, and suddenly that's not enough anymore, even though a million was always enough. That's what Rockefeller was talking about. There's never enough because lust always has an appetite for more. What Jesus is saying is not saying don't lust after things. He's saying lust after the right thing. There's a Christian author who said consumerism is starving and because we emulate the characteristics of what we worship, its worshipers are unsatisfied and never filled. The dark irony of consumerism is that we are the ones who are being consumed. What he's saying, essentially, what Jesus is saying is you will lust after something because you will aspire towards things. Something will drive your mind, will, and emotions, your heart. Let that be the things of Jesus because if it's not, it's going to eat you alive and you're going to end up alone in a dark place. More importantly, he's saying, this is the community I'm building here, the culture I'm creating here in the middle of our culture that is predominantly consumeristic. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He's saying, my greatest lust is the glory of God, and that will redefine good for everything else. One of my favorite kind of poems, if you will, is, it's an old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life, and he says, a fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One is evil, he has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false prophets, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other wolf is good. He has joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute, and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. The conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, with the people in that hill listening, is one about lust. What do you lust after? What do you aspire to? And he said, if, if you aspire after the things of this world, I can tell you where that's going to go. I can. If you aspire after the better things, I can tell you where that's going to go. We have to choose. Because in the end, and this is how he wraps it up in verse 24, it comes back to our idea of what we think our stuff does. It comes back to our idea, in my opinion, of freedom. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Again, that word for money is money and all the things that money buys. What he's saying is the original cause of this is that you don't understand that you're a slave to something. You are. I know we're sitting here and we're Americans and we think we're free. You're not. There are levels of freedom for sure and I thank God for all the levels I have but something drives me and that which drives me owns me anyway. And Jesus says, make that which drives you, which owns you, make that God. Because we think as a culture that we can have both, you know? We think that we can love God and we can love money because stuff isn't necessarily bad and it's not. But what God says is that you can't, love both. That's why if you've read any articles in the last decade, multitasking isn't a good solution to getting stuff done. 
Actually, when we multitask, it says that things get done worse. That's why nobody's a better driver when they're texting, okay? Like nobody is. Multitasking yields worse results. God's saying, you can't halfway do loving me. Something is going to drive you. And when the rubber meets the road, you are indebted. You are owned by something. What's it going to be? Is it going to be stuff here or is it going to be my stuff? And so I was always afraid of this text because I thought one day God would ask me to give up everything, you know? and to not own anything, and to not enjoy life. I think he's not saying that. What I think God's saying here, what I think Jesus is saying here, is that greater wealth isn't that you give up all that you have, but it's giving what you have to what God cares about. It's repurposing our possession for God's purposes. And in an affluent culture, it leaves us in one place. We have to ask simply, do we use what God gave us for his purposes or ours? That's it. And you can run down that checklist with your car and with your house and with your bank accounts and you gotta ask the question, what is the purpose of my stuff? And Jesus says, if the purpose of your stuff isn't God's purposes, then we have a problem here because you are serving another master. He says, get your life in order because it's a better way. It's a greater view on what wealth is. And if it comes and if it goes, God's still good. If I'm rich or if I'm poor, God's still good. And if God is gracious to me and he blesses me and he blesses us and he blesses this church, God is good. I will take all those things and turn it around for his purposes because we are creating a world inside of the one that we see that Jesus calls us into. He says there's a better way to live. I think about the first church often and how they gave up everything, you know? And I think about how hard that must have been and I think about we're sitting here today because they did what they did because they all died for it and they gave up all they had, and they didn't have much to begin with. And I think about the profound impact that made on the world around them. (laughs) I wonder what the impact would be if we used our stuff the same way they used theirs. And again, I'm not saying give it up. I'm saying use it all for God's purposes, and that's going to change from person to person. There's an American um, sociologist that lived in the middle of the 1900s, and she has a quote that is one of my favorite of all time. Her name is Margaret Mead. And she says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I love it because that's what Jesus is calling his people to do. Have one God, have one purpose, and everything we have, all the stuff that we have, use it for that. And sit back and watch what I do as we create a culture, a life, inside of the one that most other people see. Let me pray for us. God, I'm... I'm so incredibly thankful for the graciousness you've shown me to grow up in this community, to grow up in America, to grow up in a place that I don't really know what need is. I I know what want is. I'm thankful that you're a God that gives good stuff. I'm thankful that you love me like that. I'm thankful, so incredibly thankful that you blessed this church. My prayer is that we continue to remember the purpose of our stuff is your purposes. That we ask tough questions and have good conversations under the umbrella of love and grace about what it looks like to use what you've given us for you because we believe that you're creating a life inside of this one and you call us to a greater version of what wealth might look like one that might not be seen or counted but is worth so much more. So as we leave this place, <laughs> I pray that we're encouraged. I pray that we're filled with joy as we have great conversations about how good you've been and how we can use your goodness to show other people that you're good. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.